How fashion and luxury will evolve in the face of disruption brought on by the pandemic, new technologies, and environmental and social concerns is a question top of mind for the industry. What will fashion look like in two, three, or 10 years time? To answer it, we're spending 30 minutes each week with industry innovators leading the way through a changing landscape. I'm Hilary Milnes, and this is the future of fashion, the innovators by Vogue Business. This podcast is sponsored by PayPal, the most trusted buy now, pay later brand, according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 300 77 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylaterenterprise. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion, The Innovators by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes. A year out from the start of the pandemic, sustainability has solidified its positioning as a top priority for fashion companies. That's a good thing for the most part. Eileen Fisher, the founder of her eponymous brand, and Rebecca Burgess, the executive director of Fibershed, are here today to discuss fashion's current focus on sustainability and what it means for the health of the industry moving forward. We'll come to Eileen and Rebecca in just a moment. Also here today is Rachel Cernansky, the senior sustainability editor at Vogue Business. Hi, Rachel. Great to have you on again. Yeah, it's great to be here. So tell us, why did you want to have Eileen and Rebecca here together today to discuss um, the future of sustainability? How does Fibershed's work relate to the Eileen Fisher brand? Yeah, these are just two names that that come up as sort of guiding lights often in my reporting. I wanted to have them together because there's there's sort of an interesting kind of tension that comes up around the sort of nature of change in fashion and the difficulty sort of level of implementing different sustainable practices. Large companies say they can't change overnight. Small brands pop up and say that they, you know, they have an advantage in terms of, um, you know, adopting more sustainable practices because it's easier to build something from the ground up than, than to overhaul an existing operation. But Eileen Fisher has been doing, you know, a lot of the things, um, all along that uh, or has prioritized sustainability before it was cool, let's say. Um, And so I wanted to hear from her about about what it's like to work on some of these issues before there is the pressure to do so. And then Rebecca does really fascinating work with Fibershed and she works inside of different brands. She gets to kind of see up close what it can take for for brands to make major changes in their supply chains and probably on the flip side, why they can't make major changes. Uh, so I just wanted to hear how they sort of view things from their own perspectives um, and how their experiences have shaped uh, how they work with with brands. Thanks, Rachel. And with that, let's bring in our guests and dive in. Eileen and Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be here. Nice to be here. So to start, Eileen, can you share your your current outlook on sustainable fashion? I mean, this is an area that you have been working in for years before the pandemic hit and interested to hear one year out from where we started with the lockdowns and and the supply chain crisis, everything. um, You know, do you feel the industry is finally meeting the urgency of the situation. Um, you know, how do you feel about the current pace of progress and, and where we sit? Well, I think that the past year has actually forced um, more focus on sustainability. I think we've been shown, we've been actually a lot of us forced to kind of stop and rethink and reassess. And I think that the customers are getting more savvy. I, I heard that the search for sustainable apparel 
doubled in the, you know, in the past year. I, I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know. I'm not sure where that quote came from. Rebecca, you might know better than me, but I, I, I can feel that, that there's a lot more interest. I can tell even through uh, like the supply chain, much more competition for organic materials and, you know, sustainably made you know, fabrics and all. So um, that's a really good thing. I actually think it needs to, it, it needs to be more, more, faster, more. And at the same time, it needs to be slower. I think that some of the most important things we can do, which we've been forced to do during the pandemic, is to slow down. I think a lot has just has stopped. People have stopped buying like crazy. People stopped going to stores. Stores were closed. Um, I think it really forced a real rethink, even in our company, which, you know, we work hard on sustainability and have for many years. And it also pointed out a lot of places where um, maybe slowing down is better. Maybe something can we can do things differently. Rebecca, how about you? Where do you see the industry being now versus a year ago? Do you agree that, you know, might have offered this foundation for a bit of a rethink that was necessary? It's definitely offering a rethink <laughs> for sure. Mm -hmm. The brands that we're collaborating with at Fibershed, which tend to be because I'm on the Pacific coast, we, we have tried to center our work around uh, California-based brands because we want to help our community of brands connect as much as possible to the farms and ranches and opportunities for sourcing that are in our community. And what I observed is the the mid and, and small scale brands in particular um, are really coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, sourcing organic cotton or anything that we know is traceable is, is a really big need right now. The protests in India subsequent to the um, shutdown in India, uh, you know, India is a major source for organic cotton. One of the CEOs of the companies we work with said, I feel completely overexposed in the global supply chain. Like we just feel very vulnerable. We don't have enough connectivity with um, aspects of the chain that we would need to, to have this actually survive <laughs> going forward. So uh, what we've been doing is, is seeing this opportunity to connect the brands more intimately with the farming and ranching community like never before. That was really exciting to see that there was this, oh, we really want to know who's growing our cotton. <laughs> like, we want to meet them, <laughs> ideally. And we would like to have discussions with them. We would like to understand their farming practices. We're interested in, in field systems. And we literally have had a small brand hire a soil scientist. And he's one of the colleagues that I'm working with. Um, so I, I think that the issues, though, that, that still feel like deltas and, and fault lines, though, it is on the big, some of the larger brand, international brand side is the, um, what we saw with the pay up campaign, you know, that, that people are still not covering the cost of some of the inventory that they sent purchase orders out for before the pandemic. And the the kind of the pain of that. I think there's a, a clear disconnect between the areas where fashion feels like they're making a lot of progress and the commitments that they're making. And then with the, you know, the actual current state of the industry. 
And I know we're talking a lot about attention on on things like organic cotton and then what competition over those um, resources provides. And I want to, you know, have Rachel kind of take the lead there. But before we get to that, Eileen, your business has been in this in this arena for a long time. How did you respond when the pandemic hit? And, you know, did the work that you had already laid out put you in a position to respond differently to the situation than other brands might have? Like, what was your kind of knee-jerk reaction there? My knee-jerk reaction was to try not to panic, uh, but to really stop and look at everything. In the midst of doing that, we saw a lot of waste in our system. And though we work really hard to use only organic materials and work really hard on our supply chain, there are a lot of places where we're overproducing. We're, you know, being sort of pressured maybe, and, you know, to put out more new products um, monthly, twice a month even, you know, and, and then we become part of the whole markdown cycle and the whole system is just, you know, filled with too much product. And so in some ways we're forced, but in some ways, you know, we consciously decided to just to scale back what we were producing and we just scaled back the whole company. And it, it was kind of like a recommit to the original concept for us. It was like, almost like returning to the real soul of the simplest pieces and just finding the fabrics we love the most. And one of the things that scared me the most is when I started looking at where we were, I realized we were spread out into so many different fabrics that we didn't even know what we had in the supply chains. It was like, oh my God, just getting these lists of inventories, department stores, canceling orders, you know, three months of orders, backing up stores closed, you know, and there were a lot of materials we didn't, you know, we couldn't, it was so much to process. So we decided to just to try not to leave waste in the system, to use all the materials that we had, not to buy so much new, to really work with and repurpose what we had. Uh, so we did that. And also we honed down for the future, the fabrics to, I think we're producing about 25% of many fabrics as we did a year and a half ago. And even styles just reduced down to the simplest, most timeless pieces and and the fabrics that we love the most that are most sustainable. And, and it's been a really a meaningful kind of reconnect to our roots that's been really, really interesting. And in general, we've just scaled the business back. We've moved everything out of New York. We've closed down our New York City offices, our showroom. And we've just simplified and moved back to our waterfront offices in Irvington and are just like, you know, having fun again. It's really, really interesting. And, you know, back to just making the clothes we love the most and realizing that's that's what matters to us. It's not how big we are and, you know, it's not the point of, we want to we want to serve the customer and make her happy and comfortable and give her the things that are sustainable and right for her, but we don't want to serve the per, the in-between. We care about our partners, of course, all the way through, but we have to look toward the end consumer. And when she's happiest is when it's the simplest for her and we give her the things she loves. So we've recommitted to, to that. So Right. And I think it, it's also telling the fact that your brand even had surprises in the supply chain. Um, so I can only imagine where other companies might have oh been. Um, obviously, the Eileen Fisher brand took steps to scale back. Uh, Rebecca, did you find, and you, you work with brand partners, did you find that are other companies willing to, to take that step, which, you know, it's smaller businesses aren't always, you know, something that companies are willing to um, optimize for? 
you know, my optics on that are probably less, um, less refined, I would say, in terms of what was actually honed in on in different brands. But what I do know is actually a lot of our higher end materials, which would primarily be our wool sources, um, were canceled. So <laughs> we actually saw that most of the higher priced fibers that our ranching communities was producing just had no uptake for the spring. So as the lockdowns occurred and already the Asian supply chains had been in a, a form of lockdown, and then we saw the retail outlets in the West start to shut down. It was that period between March and June when the sheep are being sheared, where we were getting calls saying, we can't, we're not going to take anything you've got. I was amazed to see how many people shut those um, contracts down. And they wouldn't even have contracts. I mean, that's another issue. <laughs> There's just, we buy when we can, we buy when we will, we have no contract with you. Um, not all brands operate that way, but certainly the brands we were interfacing with were not providing consistency for the ranchers ever. And so this was not a hard thing for them to do legally, but definitely a hard thing to watch. And so we ended up working with social impact investors and buying up the wool as a community so we could keep the ranchers from going bankrupt or having the point of having to sell off land or equipment. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we watched the grade from our angle, from, from the vantage point we had, it was, it was harsh. Well, you're touching on a point that I think often gets lost in passion. So I was just hoping you could sort of just elaborate on sort of, it seems like, you know, the pace of a farm and the pace of the fashion industry are just sort of polar opposites. You know, you can't just sort of demand cotton come out of the ground. You, you know, you have to like cultivate the, the soil and then you know it has to, it takes time to grow and farmers are selling to a market. So they're only going to grow what they think they have a market for or what they know they have a market for. But fashion wants, you know, wants things when it wants it um, and doesn't want things when it doesn't want it. Is that starting to change, do you think? Or is that something that fashion brands like have done that is sort of starting to come back to bite them, do you think? Like, can you just sort of talk about this dynamic? Certainly the kinds of transitions we need to see on landscapes in production agriculture will require that brands take a longer arc of commitment, meaning you're going to need to see to transition more acreage to organic, which is a huge part of meeting the 1.5 degree pathway for the climate um, that's been outlined by, I think, the last McKinsey report for the fashion industry. We need a huge land transition. And so that's buying no GMO seed, which are hard to come by, or in India, they're very expensive. But we do need um, farmers to be able to prepare their field appropriately, which means cover crops. It means redesigning the bed structure, which needs new equipment if you're not going to till your land in the same way or you're going to reduce your tillage. Those costs are upfront. And so we've been, we've been trying to get grants to accomplish that. But really, the brands um, have a role to play in these upfront transition costs and then these long arc commitments because land takes years. Like in one case, I'm looking at production ag acreage that's been managed conventionally with synthetic inputs, needing a five-year transition. So five years is someone has to be there by the side of the farmer if, if this is going to realize itself. There's a huge chasm between 
the timeline of fashion and what the what the land will require to meet the goals we all have. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of exciting as a brand that the kind of impact and the, and understanding the role that we can play in partnering with the farmers and committing and planning to design into the materials that they're making. And, and it, it requires a lot more planning uh, up front. And I, I, I like to think of it as more consciousness. You know, we have to bring more consciousness into the whole planning process. It isn't just, here's a cute new design. I like this. Let's put this out there. But that's why I'm very committed to fabric. That's why that was an, another additional lesson we learned here, the, the depth of commitment to fabric, you know, and that fabric you know, that the materials can really have a positive impact. And I love that you're talking about wool, but but it's the same for organic cotton or organic linen, you know, that through the process of uh, organic and regenerative agriculture, we can actually, I love this drawdown carbon, we can actually have a positive impact on the planet. And I think that um, motivates us all and gives meaning to the work that we're trying to do every day. that idea of longer-term planning. And I'm, I'm actually hoping at some point to invite the customers in a little bit more. I'm already trying to teach them more about the fabrics and, you know, but invite them into planning. I'm, I'm thinking of it as creating like conscious closets and, you know, how do they get to see the products that are coming and be able to plan. But at the beginning, it was just like make simple clothes that are timeless, that last and make them out of materials, natural fibers. I was just, I love natural fibers and, I just thought natural fibers were were sustainable, you know, and it, it took a while for me to kind of understand that, you know, conventional cotton was a big problem, you know, and that it used a lot of pesticides and herbicides and, you know, water and so on. And so I think over the years we became more educated and I hired a director of sustainability, actually social consciousness 25 years ago and, you know, just kind of started to try hard to educate ourselves around uh, sustainable materials because the materials are central. One other thing I wanted to hear your perspective on is, you know, as in general, it's easier for a company to fix a problem that's already kind of well understood and studied and that solutions already kind of exist to address than to first identify the problem and and then have to come up with solutions for yourself. And Eileen, I imagine that's something you've come up against a number of times. Can you, have you, and how do you navigate that? And do you have any examples to share? Whenever I have a problem, I kind of like dive in, you know, when COVID happened, it was like dive in. What, how are we going to solve this? What's going to, and I feel like what we're finding is those problems push us forward. So I'll give you an example. And I was talking about the circular. So we decided that we would, gather our uh, employees' clothes and um, and resell them. And we started a little vintage business of our, you know, recycled clothes. And it was such a hit that, you know, we had the one store here near us here in Irvington where um, we had a section of the, we used to call it Green Eileen, now it's called Renew. And the customers would come in and buy those clothes as if they were just part of the whole thing, you know? And it also was a place where you could get something more reasonably priced if you if you're willing to to dive in and you know because you only have one of each you know because you don't have different sizes. But anyway, what happened then is we started taking we decided to take the clothes back from the customers. And in the midst of doing that, we found that we could resell, but not all of them. 
So, you know, a certain percentage of them were, you know, damaged beyond repair or just, you know, couldn't be resold. So we started just saving them because we didn't want them to go in the landfill. And then at one point we had like three warehouses full of these clothes and we had to figure out what to do with this problem. And we're still, we still have too many. (laughs) And it's still a problem. And it's really interesting. It's like, because our materials are so amazing that we use that we just, aside from not wanting to put them in the landfill because we don't, you know, want to add to the textile waste problem. We also love these materials. And so they have a lot of inherent value. So, um, so we came up with um, this felting process, which I was uh, mentioned. Well, not on. I've mentioned some of you before, but we actually t- um, cut up. We deconstruct the clothes and cut them up and remake them. And we have a whole little tiny factory operating here in Irvington, which isn't so tiny. It's twenty thousand square feet, and we're remaking clothes into pillows and wall pieces and little bags and things like that that we're selling. So that's pretty interesting, you know, to take a problem and turn it into sort of the next innovation. Mm-hmm. Clearly from from Eileen's process here, we talk about sustainable materials and, you know, designing with them, but that creates an entire chain, an entire system of being a more sustainable fashion brand. Um, and, you know, Rachel's written about this a lot, upcycling and, and dead stock is, is starting to get more attention from mainstream brands. From your experience, is that, is this a good area for the industry to focus on or is it kind of looking at one segment of a much larger piece that needs to be fully understood to work. Oh, we have to look at all the pieces, but it's a big piece. There's a lot of waste. So that was what we really learned, you know, um, during COVID even more than before. That's why, you know, our, our idea is to really focus on fabrics and, you know, not to let them go to waste because they're so precious. So there's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle, but 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 there there's a there's a lot of, of potential in there. There's uh, small brands that are just actually working with the waste stream of, you know, from the larger companies, and there's there's a lot of wonderful materials to be found in there, and opportunity. Right. But do you think it's an overall net positive for for the industry to be prioritizing this piece of sustainability? Uh, are there any drawbacks? To, to do the dead stock work plus Eileen's work of essential fabric choice and what is the essential fabric choice in the timeless piece. So the timeless piece and the essential fabric keep returning. That would eliminate probably a good amount of dead stock, which is really what you want to do because you don't want to, and when you're ever creating a feedstock, you just want to be careful that it doesn't start a whole new set of dependencies um, that then have to rely on that stream that probably should have never been there in the first place if the th- if the system was in balance, mm-hmm. right? So, and Rebecca, also the other piece of the whole puzzle is what you do, which is at the beginning of you know actually using materials that are you know create a positive impact, mm-hmm. you know that are regenerative and you know bring the soil back to life and draw down carbon. I mean that's a really important piece of the whole puzzle. It's very, very whole. And I think that this touches on something that I wanted to to ask you both about. How how do you balance incremental progress with bigger picture work, bigger picture problems? Well, well, that's a good one. We do it all the time. Um, we, we really struggled as we um, started to be, become more and more aware 
of what was happening. And for us over the years, it was taking our biggest materials and converting them to organic, converting them to blue sign certified or, you know, tensile rather than rayon, things like that. Uh, viscose, you know, trying to get out of those kind of materials and the one, use the ones that are producing the, you know, cleaner closed loop cycles, things like that. But it was for us, you know, it, it's interesting because the problem wasn't quite as urgent when we started on it. Um, now it's become so much more urgent that we have to make progress faster. How to convert if you're a big company. I think some of it is, you know, like the commitment to do it. I think it starts there with each of us and with the leaders in particular committing and giving permission to, to do that. I think it starts with um, including the designers. It starts at the beginning at inception of the products and permission to design with materials that may cost more or that may have to be planned out a lot further. So it's, it's a very long, long, big picture. But I think I would encourage everyone to start where you are, you know, to, to look at all the parts of the puzzle that you can and, you know, start with the most impactful ones of like, I would say the material itself is, you know, and the design itself, the inception of the design is, is the best place to start, I think. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca, it seems like fiber shed and every conversation that I, that I have had with you, you are focused on the big picture in your work, but then I'm wondering if you would say that, that your work with the with individual brands is focused more on sort of incremental change. And so, yeah, so how do you sort of balance those two things? Well, we continue to just have these master plans that we <laughs> keep very um, focused upon, and we're incrementally building out these master plans as we're simultaneously working with the brand community to do things that for them might be an incremental change or in some cases a very (laughs) monolithic change. It depends on who we're working with and what they've agreed to. I do think that the master plan includes things that seem very radical, um, perhaps from where we are now. And that if we're going to hit our biodiversity goals, our climate goals, I think the radical vision here is that we we actually focus on manufacturing and we actually reinvest in systems that can produce um, with both renewable energy and can produce what the land actually yields, not what we force the land to yield. So my solution to that would be from a climate perspective to actually put the value-added systems much more close to those communities and create rural jobs and vertical integration in those communities. And I think that brands could work pre-competitively to begin to invest as a partner in that. I think social impact investment and public dollars and tax credits, there's a brands are critical to that because the investors who might be able to launch that on the ground need to know that the brands want to be able, they're going to be uptaking from that system and they're going to be partners. So I actually think it's an open chapter in this book, this evolution right now on the big radical change is what will the partnership of brands look like? How early in the game will they get involved in the radical change? Or will they simply want to see the proceeds of that radical change and then market it very well? Mm -hmm. Eileen, I'm curious 
When you look at the industry now with so many brands coming out with different commitments on sustainability, is your work on, you know, to reduce environmental impacts or, you know, to increase your positive impacts, is that work getting easier or harder to do? Do you think that there's, for example, is there more competition over certain technologies or, you know, fabrics or suppliers or? Uh, In some ways it's easier because there's more options, more more suppliers that are um, providing um, the kind of materials we're looking for uh, and that they've come to work with us and, you know, to try to supply us. So that's been good. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's more, um, there's more competition for the, you know, organic cotton and more sustainable materials, which I think is a really good thing because I think that drives demand. It's, it means we have to plan earlier which um, and commit earlier, which is, is hard. It's a lot of work. But I think that that demand gives me hope that there's more demand in the system for these um, materials. Uh, so it's kind of both is an answer to your question. It's somewhat easier and somewhat harder. What I think we need to think about as companies, and we've done this, and it's a little bit hard for public companies, but to kind of stop and reassess about what is the meaning of success at this company. What are we really trying to do and why are we doing this? You know, is it all just about making profits? Is that really what people want? I, I really think people want to feel like their work is meaningful. It feels good to feel like they're a part of something that matters and that they can make change. And, you know, if they think about their children and the future of the planet and they feel like they're a part of something that is supporting that change, then, then they're, they become loyal employees. And also, um, also the customers are loyal when they feel that they can purchase from a company that, you know, is doing good things. And I, I confess to being utterly imperfect on this topic because it is imperfect work. We're almost out of time, but, um, you know, just to, just to leave off, um, Eileen, I want to go back to that, you know, initial, you, had this, you know, energy around just this kind of refreshing rethink of of the fashion industry in the last year. What would you say to brands, you know, to kind of impart that that same feeling of like, you know, obviously it's been a really hard year, but now we're at the precipice of a of a new opportunity. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, get committed to this priority because it's going to be the way of the future, and better now than later, or you might be left behind. Um, but also just to repeat what I said before, it's meaningful. It gives meaning to your work, your, you know, and it's, it's very personal. I think about my daughter, my son and their future and their kids. And, you know, um, I feel good about it. And I think giving meaning to the work that we do and for our employees and for our customers, I think, I think people want that. So the personal, it's, it always starts with us, wherever we are. If we're the leader of a company, if we're a designer, you know, what's my personal commitment to the environment? You know, what can I do today? So um, that's where I would start. Yeah. And Rebecca, any, any final words for, for brands? Oh, just know that there's a world out there of partnerships and opportunities awaiting you. Um, that maybe live outside of the crucible of typical um, ideas about what what brands do and how brands work. So to Eileen's point, you know, there's there's this new wave coming, (laughs) 
And what it is to me, it's, it's opening the door to, to building a, a set of team members that maybe live outside your brand. Like the idea of brands partnering with soil scientists, the idea of brands partnering with researchers, brands partnering with farms, farm families, brands eventually partnering with new forms of capital that are partnering up with them to leverage the bigger change, pooling the money. What are those new funds that are going to have to be architected that we all work together? So I guess it's just like reaching out, the brands reaching out and with their hand out, like, let's team up because it's going to take more than what any one brand could staff, (laughs) I would imagine. Well, thank you both so much for being here. It was a great conversation. And thank you, Rachel, again, for joining us. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks, Eileen and Rebecca for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Hillary, Rachel. And thanks, Rebecca. That was fun. Beautiful job. (laughs) We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all of our shows from this series on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alad John. My name is Hilary Milnes. That was the future of fashion. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by PayPal, the most trusted buy now, pay later brand, according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 377 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylaterenterprise.